0: Near the end of my trip, while in Los Angeles, I met Dr. Lorne Foster at Griffith Avenue's historic Second Baptist Church. 74 and newly retired after 40 years on the faculty of Pomona College, he grew up worshiping here on Sundays and tells me he came home from the hospital just five blocks away on East 18th Street. Still, he mentions his southern roots within our first minute of speaking.
1: My folks are from South Louisiana. Okay, and i got to have grits and eggs. My favorite restaurant here in L.A. is a place called Harold Bell's. And it's a New Orleans-style restaurant, so I can go there and get a plate of red beans and rice or or an oyster po' boy or bread pudding. And, you know, that's just like being at home.
0: Dr. Foster developed this taste for Creole cooking through his grandparents, who quit the sawmill and came here from Baton Rouge in 1919. Within four years, they owned a seven-room home with three apartment units in the back, thanks to a barber shop his grandfather ran on Central Avenue.
1: It was night and day. African Americans could come to Los Angeles pre-Depression, and be aspirational. I I didn't say be free, but I said be aspirational. Uh, Have access to education, have access to some civil service jobs, uh, and have the opportunity to own property, and to, you know, see if the American Dream really does work for, you know, former enslaved people. The Exodus story, is not just a Jewish story, it's an African-American story. And Exodus you go through. It's not a story, you go through the Exodus. And so you have to remember and you have to kind of convey to others what what the stories are.
0: Like many fleeing Jim Crow Louisiana and Texas, Dr. Foster's grandparents followed this Exodus via the Southern Pacific Rail Line. Then, as motor travel took off, those who could afford to began journeying west via car. But while a drive down Route 66 in the 40s and 50s was heavily promoted as an ideal leisure trip, absent from posters advertising the wonders of the painted desert are any black faces. For them, author and cultural documentarian Candace Taylor says this trip could be like a minefield.
2: When I learned that half the counties on Route 66 were sundown towns and sundown towns are all white towns and they were all white on purpose. Some had a sign saying inward don't let the sun set on you here. Others would ring a bell at 6 p.m. alerting the locals um, local laborers and and domestics to leave the town. Um, If if nearly half the counties, there are 89 counties on Route 66, and about 44 of them were sundown towns. How in the world did black people drive
0: Route 66? I mean, that was my first question. Ms. Taylor found herself asking this question while driving 66 on assignment to write a guidebook for moon travels, and discovered an answer of sorts upon her return to California in the form of an old weathered pamphlet.
2: I stumbled on a Black travel guide and, at the Autry Museum in Los Angeles. I was living in LA at the time, and I'd never known such a thing existed. It was 2013. So it was still very largely unknown. It was just very clear that this wasn't just a AAA guide. You know, it wasn't just about you need a place to sleep and eat. It was like you needed a place to find solace and comfort and peace um, in a way that other travelers, especially white travelers, didn't necessarily need while they were on the road. And so to me, it became obvious. It was very different. Um, but yet, it's just listings in a book. You know, it seems very innocuous. It seems like, oh, it's a travel guide. Um, but it saved lives.
0: This revelation ignited a purpose in Candacy to study and drive thousands of miles documenting Green Book sites for a project that resulted in the publication of her book, Overground Railroad. Near its opening, she writes that she was immediately struck by how something as practical and simple as the Green Book could be so powerful. Published by Victor Green, a postal worker with a seventh grade education, its title always included the phrase, Now we can travel without embarrassment. And while born of indignity, it stands as an incredible record of black self sufficiency and entrepreneurship. And today, We're going to visit a site on Route 66 that, while strangely never listed, stands as a reminder of these same people of fortitude who made a way out of no way. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Before we get started, I'm excited to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts, Gravy. A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells stories about the changing American South, and the team recently kicked off a new season all about a summer staple, barbecue. Tune in to hear six stories from across the South and beyond, exploring questions around political legacies, place, recognition, blended cuisines and identities, and much more, all through the smells of smoked brisket and tanga barbecue sauce. Gravy is available wherever you get your podcasts. And now... Let's get back to the show. Many favor driving 66 to Oklahoma City in order to sample bottles of sweet corn, celery, or maple bacon soda at Pops outside Arcadia. But driving west before there on a bluff about three miles ahead of the town of Luther, you might notice a small shabby bungalow of sandstone rock with peeling white gables. A long shuttered filling station It's the kind of unremarkable structure realtors might dismiss as a teardown. But in its grimy windows rest a pair of faded signs that simply state in orange print, this place matters. This place was the Threet Service Station. And having unlocked the door and invited me in, Pastor Alan Threat tells me why they keep those words displayed. Because the only way that black folks
3: can travel from the East Coast to West Coast, they had to come by to the Service Station. Blacks couldn't stop in any town, but by the word of mouth, not the green book, by the word of mouth, didn't know if you want some rest, if you want some peace overnight, if you want some food you can eat, thirsty you can drink soda pop, if you, beer, whatever, uh, just stop by a 3 service station. And so this was a place of refuge that people can stop and have, and relax. Uh, you wouldn't worried about uh, the, the, uh, the color of your skin because we didn't see a person as uh, white, black, or uh, red, or whatever. We looked at a person just as a human being.
0: 83, but tall, spry, and commanding in presence. Pastor Threat was put to work here for tips not long after he could walk and talk. His employer was, of course, his grandfather Alan Senior, who built this cottage in 1915 before converting it into a station in the 20s. And while it's been a long time since anything was sold here, standing behind the dusty old wood-paneled counter, Mr. Threet's eyes light up as memories come alive. I, as a little boy, uh, I used to spend the summer here with gra- my grandpa.
3: He was the owner. And then my uncle took over after my grandfather passed away. But uh, I used to help pump gas, run out to the cars when the cars stopped, put air in the tires and do all that and walk back in. And it seemed like this place, seemed like it was a great big place as a little (laughs) boy, you know, (laughs) because uh, this was a bar and a bar went all the way across, had a little TV in a corner back there, and, and, and had a little uh, stools so people could sit around and after get gas and just relax. And so this was a place. This was a very important place, and I, I thank God for the vision that He had uh, when He built this wreck here on Sixty
0: Six Highway. Nodding in agreement is the pastor's younger, gray-bearded cousin Edward, who shares in this familial pride. We are the
4: only black family that owns a business on Highway 66 mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. Right, okay? right. That's yeah. important. Yeah. Um, the family actually owns about 150 acres here, okay? And it's been in our family for over 100 years and um, <laughs> it'll be in our family forever. Well, Grandpa, he he actually started out homesteading the property okay and (laughs) but it was actually by the grace of god i mean there was so much animosity directed towards black people at that point in time so that you had to have unfortunately you had to have a white intermediary okay approaches to purchase. To, yes. to 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 step forward and to allow certain things to happen, things that you shouldn't have to have anybody in your way, but it it was through the grace of 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 some white people that um, recognized Grandpa's strength as a man recognized that Grandpa was serious about taking care of his family, raising his sons and daughters. Grandpa was serious about owning this piece of property, okay? And it was through, like I said, intermediaries that Grandpa was able to
0: get a patent. And uh, really, the rest is history. The Threat Filling Station did see a lot of history. The cousins tell me some of the people they served included the prize fighter Joe Lewis, Pearl Bailey, and Nat King Cole. But their grandfather didn't just sell gas and provisions. He built a free campground out back where people could get a safe night's rest, and not one but two baseball diamonds that hosted Negro League tournaments. All the summer,
3: all the summer, they played every, every Saturday and Sunday. And during that time, all the black baseball teams uh, that had formed a league that couldn't play with the white, where well, they came they played against each other, and so on the weekend we had, they had two or three baseball mm-hmm. games right here on right here. We had a baseball diamond across the street, mm-hmm. and they had another baseball diamond on this side mm-hmm. of the street. Yes,
4: it's it's hard to describe. Okay. The feeling when when you look around, and when I say that it was wall to wall black people out here, I mean that there was a joy in that all by itself. Mm-hmm. Okay, a peach. You got you got to understand that mm-hmm. our property is right in the middle of sundown towns. Okay. And I, mean, I don't know if you're familiar with what a sundown downtown is, but mm-hmm. to come here, to have that peace, that mm-hmm. where you don't have to be concerned about anything.
0: Hearing this, I ask how they were made aware of these towns growing up. Very easy, uh, because because when you're in the town,
3: yeah, there's a sign out there says, uh, I don't know if this said, uh, I can't remember, it said Negro or blacks don't be cold after the sun go down mm-hmm. in this town, you know, so so and, and some had six o'clock mm-hmm. and some just had just don't be cold mm-hmm. in town after the sun go down.
4: You would like to think that these things went away, but they didn't, yeah. you know. Uh, a few years back, and let's say ten years ago, okay? I used to be the mayor in Luther, okay? And I had a white guy tell me, don't let dark catch you in town, okay? This is 10 years ago, okay? Now, me being me, I made a point to be in town after dark because you're not gonna tell me. That's just my attitude, okay? But again, that just goes to show you, okay? that you would like to think that things have changed.
0: And they have. Yeah. But not that much, yeah. okay? Not yeah. that much. Though. Remembering this story in California, I asked Dr. Foster if there are any precautions he takes as an African-American driver today that might never cross my mind.
1: You're always, even today as a 74-year-old, you are always mindful of your space. No one need. that. Tell you what the rules of the road are. They, 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 they are implicit uh, and they are unwritten. Uh, you never know uh, when something untoward will happen.
0: Similarly, Candacey tells me her stepfather Ron's travel practices confounded her for years.
2: He would only drive at night if he was taking a long trip. He would leave at like 10 o'clock at night and I would be so furious because I was, I was like, he, it's dangerous to drive all night why can't you just drive during the day like a normal person, (laughs) you know? And I said, you're putting my mother's life at risk and everybody's life at risk on the road because you cannot, you know. And he would just say, oh, traffic, you know, that's a reason. He would have to drive in the middle of the night. And, you know, once I started talking to him more and I was writing the book, I was like, oh, he was doing that because it's just easier. He's invisible as a black man behind the wheel. Um, There were other things he would do when I would go home. He would try and just load me down with food. And, you know, and I'd be on my way down. I was like, I can just get something at the airport or I can just get, you know, I don't need to take food with me. But again, he never left the house without taking food with him because being, you know, raised in that that reality that you couldn't always depend that somebody was going to serve you while you travel. These were the
0: the steps that he would take. She began to understand the roots of these precautions when late in life, he shared a story she'd never heard.
2: I remember one day I was asking him about, I was reading about people who traveled with chauffeur's hats as a ruse. And he, the story just tumbles out of his mouth. And um, he basically said, yeah, this happened to me when I was seven years old and we were driving, leaving Memphis, crossing the Tennessee border. And uh, with his him and his mother and father, and his father had a good job with the railroad, so they had a nice car. It was a newer car, and they get pulled over by a sheriff. And the sheriff comes to the side of the window, and as he's walking up, you know, as Ron's father, you know, turns to Ron who's sitting in the back seat and says, "Don't say a word." All of a sudden, the you know tone and the energy and everything changes in the in the car, and and the sheriff, you know, is like. First thing he asked "Who's whose car is this? You know, where are you going and who are these people with you? And Ron's father said, it's my employer's car. And then he looked at his wife and pretended he didn't know her. And he said, uh, that's the maid and her son is in the back and I'm driving him home. And uh, the sheriff said, well, where's your hat? You know, and he said, oh, it's hanging right in the back, officer. And Ron looked over to to the side. He saw this black hat hanging there. He said he'd seen it. It had been in there the whole time, ever since he could remember. No one had ever worn it. He didn't know what it was or what it was for. Um, And the sheriff waved him on and said, all right, go on. He said after that day, in nearly every black man's car, there was a chauffeur's hat hanging up. And it was a very common um, ruse or prop to basically divert attention away from any animosity that might come from a sheriff who felt jealous or upset that a black man might have a nicer car than he could afford.
0: A chauffeur's hat was just one of many items of preparation black drivers would keep on hand when hitting 66 or any road for that reason.
2: You know you wouldn't just you'd have to bring gas cans with you full of gas because there were Many gas stations who wouldn't serve you, they may serve you gas, but then they won't let you use the facilities. So they traveled with, you know, lots of sheets and uh, to hang up as partitions, to use a bathroom. I, you know, interviewed a a man um, who remembers, you know, growing up, he and his other brothers and cousins would be told to go run out into the field because that would scare the snakes away so their aunts or mothers could use the restroom outside and not worry about being bitten by snakes. But there were so many things that they had to be prepared for. You know, you had to have separate spark plugs and all these different things the way cars worked back then. You could actually fix your car on the road, so you had to make sure you had all those belts and things that, you know, in case you did break down, you just had to have a lot of faith
0: that it was going to be okay. Hearing this reinforces that the Threats didn't just run a filling station, but a sanctuary. We knew what it was to be discriminated against. Mm-hmm.
4: So you don't turn around and treat somebody the same way that, that you've been treated. Mm-hmm. you treat them the way you want to be treated.
3: We was taught, always be polite. Mm-hmm. I don't care if white, black, whoever, you're you always polite to people. It, it was a privilege. It was a proud
0: because I was trying to see how many tips I could get that day by being polite to the people. Pastor Threed also pocketed some change by combing the floor for coins after dances. At the juke joint, his uncle Edmund built and opened in a cinder block building they show me next door.
4: There's nothing that I can't tell you about this place, okay? Like, uh, like you said, my dad my dad, uh, owned this. Friday night, this place was just packed. I mean, it it
3: was packed. that, that's that too. yeah. That's okay. So.
4: it started out on the Friday, okay? Yeah. There wasn't enough room in this building, okay? He sold barbecue, he sold beer, uh, barbecue ribs, chickens, the whole nine yards. It was all right here, okay?
3: Your dad, your dad had a, a a small casino back in the back back then. I there. know. They shot dice <laughs> and played cards. You know, (laughs) nobody could get back there unless you want to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah. Every every Friday yeah. and Saturday night they'd yeah. be shooting craps. You're back in the back. Back, back in there. the back yeah. back there. Yeah, I didn't go back there. Yeah. I couldn't go back there when they were shooting yeah. craps. And, and they stuff.
3: had a band in this corner That mm-hmm. corner right it had a band right there, the corner up right there. <laughs> drums yeah. and he play, they played the music mm-hmm. on Friday, Saturday night.
4: Okay, this place was jumping man. It was it was a good time. Yes. It was a very good time. The thing that sticks out in my mind being in here on a Sunday. Okay. And I remember, I can't remember the ladies' names. It was more than one lady. But they would always been be in here on a Sunday listening to the blues. Okay? And I was just, I mean, I'm a blues fan myself now, okay? But I remember those ladies being in here and dancing and just being silly, but they always played. The blues, you know,
0: and it's just,
4: that just sticks in my head. I remember that, you
3: know.
0: Alan Threet Sr. died in 1950 and left the station in his son Ulyss's hands. But like many businesses, it felt the sting when 66 got bypassed and eventually closed in the 70s with the bar shuttering in due time after. Mr. Threet's daughter-in-law Elizabeth continued living above the station until her death in 2009, after which the property fell into limbo and disrepair. But after many years of hard work and legal wrangling, Edward and Alan tell me that measures have been taken to protect its future, which is coming into focus.
4: Like I said, this land has been in the family for over 100 years. And um, myself and some cousins, we have, through an attorney... Put together a covenant that says that this property can never be sold outside the family. The property is actually owned by Three Legacy LLC. So we have done what's necessary to uh, protect this property so that future generations of Mm -hmm. threats can always look at this and call it home. Right. Okay. We have been working on this for, oh man, the last five years, trying to pull everything together, trying to protect the property. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been it's, it's a blessing that we're able to, to do all of the things that we've done. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, we're trying to make sure that we do this while we're still in the land of the living because the generation behind us doesn't know the things that we know, okay? So um, with the good Lord's blessing, we'll we'll make it happen, we will make it happen, so. um, We're in the process right now of um, getting bids to actually have this building restored to its uh, original state.
0: Their goal is to have the building reopened as a small museum and gift shop in time for the root centennial in 2026. And Edward hopes to even refire the pit and host occasional weekend barbecues in the old bar. They've gotten grants, have been raising money and much work remains. But the threats seem undaunted because this project is bigger than them. History don't die.
3: History keep living. History get, get better or worse. But history never die. And all depends on what you want to remember from the past history, that you can make a better history tomorrow. Keep
0: faith alive. Keep hope alive. In regard to hope, Candace confesses to me that it's something she struggles with. Victor Green wrote in his introductions, There will be a day sometime in the near future when this guide will not have to be published, and it will be a great day for us to suspend this publication. But while it's lamentable Mr. Green never lived to see the passage of the Civil Rights Act, Candace believes he would be shocked by much of our world today.
2: I'd go places where there was once 20 Green Book sites. It's replaced by a freeway. Those were businesses. Um, So the devastation of our communities is not because Black folks don't want to work hard or lazy or on welfare or on drugs. Um, It's because these were targeted government forces that shaped the way people lived and survived. And those who did have educations or who did have money left those communities. It's a, it's a consequence of, you know, of integration that we lost a lot of um, that community where um, we had built these really fabulous places and these incredibly you know, supportive and healthy and vibrant communities and neighborhoods and um for the most part they are they are not what they used to be and the level of you know blight and um and uh just struggle and poverty is just you know it's it's heartbreaking i think the biggest thing we can do as individuals and collectively is just tell the truth and see it
0: for what it is the story of the Threet family, their filling station, and the struggle and joy it represents is a true one. It's truer than much of the rose-tinted nostalgia the route has become enveloped by. And while I enjoy coke floats, believe myths and legends have their place, and recognize nostalgia has played an important role in 66's rejuvenation, there's a lot more to this road than that. As the clock nears four, Our time at the station draws to a close because the cousins have a contractor to meet with. I thank them for their time, tell them I plan on returning to see the museum after it's opened, and while they can't say when, before parting ways, Edward promises me that day is coming.
4: I am, we've been doing this, seems like, for so long, and um, right now, physically, I'm tired, I mean, I, mean I, I am, I'm tired. But here, I know I can't stop. I can't stop until this thing is complete, until it's ready to be turned over to the next generation mm-hmm. so, that, so that we absolutely do not fail. I said, I told you earlier that I never met Grandpa, okay? But Grandpa drives me. The thought of of preserving all of what Grandpa did is what motivates me to not quit. I don't care how tired I am or how tired I feel. I can't let Grandpa down, okay? I mean, (laughs) I never met him, but I know he's watching. Okay, And so I have to do this, not for me, but, but for our family.
0: It gives me great joy to announce that since my visit, remodeling on the station has officially started. The Threet family is hard at work and know they could use as much help as possible, so if you have it in your heart to give, head on over to ThreetFillingStation.org. I'm including a link to that site in the show notes where you can send a donation, see pictures, and learn a bit more about them. Thanks to Edward and Alan, Dr. Lauren Foster for meeting me in L.A., Denise McIver at the California African American Museum, and the incredible Candacee Taylor. Her book Overground Railroad is well worth your time, as is her work as a whole. And am including a link to her site, Taylor Made Culture, where you can check out what she's up to. Most of all, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow, and doing that guarantees you will never miss any content. Also, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could just take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more, please find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com, where you're always welcome to reach out. Our theme music was written and performed by Max Krauss and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards.